Yeah. That's good that you flew out to St. Louis to do that. Also, they have a foley softball field, so they have space in right field. It's a softball field, and probably a baseball field. Yes, it's significantly smaller. But ours is too much smaller. Our right field, the fence should be around 200 feet from one plate, and ours is about 175, 178, which is way too short. But we can't get any closer than It's just like Fenway Park. Because of the, that's why our fences are so high. Mm-hmm. But um, we can't go any further because we have train tracks. We can't get any closer to the train. We can't uh, go backwards because yeah. baseball gets funding and gets to make the decisions. I don't know. That seems like so non-Title Nine. Yes, <laughs> there have been a lot of complaints where there are going to be more. Oh, there are by you. By teammates, I don't. I'm not attached enough to really feel the need to spend my time that way. But <laughs> <laughs> how many more games? Yeah. I don't know. Um, games Wednesday, we are going to New York to play Friday and Saturday. I assume that the next couple of weeks will also look like this one. Where are you playing in New York? Um, we play in NYU, but they don't have their own field because they're NYU, and so we play at Fordham. Okay. So you're just playing NYU? Just the one yeah, game? Yeah, just the one team, because it's the UA, it's conference games. Uh-huh. So we do all four of our games against that team on Friday and Saturday. Oh, God. <laughs> Wow. Yep. What do you ask? All right, then. Um, so did you get to read a lot of the prelude? Mm-hmm. Did you get to read a lot of the prelude? I spent most of the weekend sitting in the terms in physics, so... <sighs> physics. You just didn't want to do something hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing in physics? Um, it's... Uh, fluid mechanics, so... Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, vector fields and tensors and... And partial derivatives? And Gerstner waves, partial derivatives, total material derivatives. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, speaking about fluid mechanics... Um, I'm really impressed. What, the geometry? You want the segue? Yeah. Um, yeah, you could book. What the, the Euclid? Okay, the book of geometry. There's that, and who went to the same school that Wordsworth did? What greatest physicist of all time went to the same school that Wordsworth went to? Newton. Yes, you shouldn't have a question mark there because he actually says so explicitly. <laughs> so yes, Newton, Wordsworth and Newton, two peas in a pod. So yeah, uh, Wordsworth's views of Newton weren't quite the same as uh, Blake's. Using Newton. So that's good. All right, uh, back to the intimations ode, which we'll finish today. Are you guys liking the prelude? You're through book four, is that right? Book five. Oh, book five, yes, that's right. Okay. Um, so book six is really great, and we'll finish the prelude today, and then we'll have a way of, of talking about the first six books on Wednesday and maybe Thursday. Are you liking it still? Very suggestive. <laughs> Are you still liking it a lot, more and more, right? Am I right or am I right? <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Um, so we got to the beginning. Oh, where to go? Oh, 4.30-something. Um, to the beginning of stanza five. Our birth is but asleep and forgetting. And, um, again, the, um, 
just to remind us of what we were talking about on last Wednesday. Um, the difference between the opening, the, we were looking at both the similarities and differences between uh, the opening of the poem and then the reboot in stanza five. So in stanza five, what we, what we in stanza one, it's the glory and the freshness of a dream are connected to each other. Dreams are glorious, freshness, uh, um, dreams are fresh, and those are similar things. In stanza five, that is starting in line 58, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting is opposed to the trailing clouds of glory that we come with. Um, that is at line 64. So that dream turns to sleep, that is, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. That sounds like he is just pursuing what he has said in stanza one, that childhood has the glory and the freshness of a dream. Um, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. And then we get a but, though, which is like the but in stanza two, but yet I know where'er I go that there hath passed away a glory from the earth, we get a but leading to glory two in stanza five, but trailing clouds of glory do we come. So that glory is associated with childhood and sleep or dreaming is associated with childhood, but here they're opposed to each other. And the sleep and the forgetting is the opposite of the glory that we come to the world with from God who is our home. So the difference there is a subtle one, but the subtlety of that, I mean, it's not that subtle, but it's subtle enough, but the subtlety of that difference is also crucial. So what happens in stanza five is that, as Wordsworth put it later, when he was explaining some of the ideas in the Intimations Ode to um, Isabel Fenwick, who took down his explanations, but this is much later, is that Wordsworth has recourse to the platonic idea that we talked about of an amnesia. And so the idea there, this is... Um, Plato's view is that the soul pre-existed birth and at birth we forget what we once knew and hence our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. We forget what we once knew and are trapped in this material world not knowing unless we think hard and think philosophically and devote ourselves to philosophical thinking, not knowing that there's anything beyond this. So a famous definition of philosophy is that philosophy teaches you how to die, and the um, idea there would be that philosophy makes you philosophical about things. That is, that it can teach you how to die because it can teach you that dying is not giving up that much, that the world is not worth fear of, to, ex, excessive fear of death, that what the world offers 
is not so great that dying should be regarded as a complete catastrophe. And that idea that to, to philosophize is to learn how to die, most famously associated with Montaigne, that idea is something that you could imagine really connects most philosophical schools, even if they disagree about everything else. What they do is they try to think through a way of thinking that makes death less oppressive to the mind. So Epicureanism, for example, um, takes the idea, takes the um, form of saying that, in fact, you don't have to worry about death because in the famous line, where death is, we are not, and where we are, death is not. That is, that death and us, we never inhabit the same place, so we shouldn't fear death because we will never be dead because there won't be a we to be dead um. when death comes. So that's one way to reconcile yourself with fear of mortality. Another way is to regard life as something that can have no true effect upon you. Another way is skepticism, just not to believe in what the world is saying to you. Another way is Platonism, to believe that after you die you return to the realm of forms. Another way is cynicism, to think that there's nothing in life worth the living. So in one way or another you can think that most philosophy of a certain kind, not the philosophy of logic, although possibly the philosophy of logic as well, arguably the philosophy of logic as well. No, because philosophy of logic is Platonism, is ultimately Platonism. I just think you said arguably. Yeah, okay, nice. Nice catch. The, that, that, that philosophizing reconciles you in one way or another with the human anxiety about death and helps you to overcome that human anxiety. So the Platonic version of that is that we, were, we pre-existed the, um, our birth, and Wordsworth said to Fenwick that he decided to go back to the poem with that background, not because he believed it, uh, by the time he's talking to her, he's representing himself as a pretty orthodox Christian. And so the Platonic doctrine of preexistence is not a Christian doctrine. We, Christianity doesn't believe, as Plato did, in reincarnation. That is, that we existed before our birth and that after our death we'll hang around until we're reborn as some other figure, which is what Plato ultimately ends up saying. Wordsworth doesn't think that, but he still takes the Platonic doctrine, and what he gets from it is the idea that childhood is not the greatest experience that the human soul has ever had, which is what he's saying at the beginning of the Intimations Ode, but that childhood is already something other than the greatest experience that human beings, that the human soul has ever had. 
So a way to do it, a way to think about this is to say that the first four stanzas, if you were to chart the trajectory or the path that Wordsworth is describing for himself, is something like there was a time when meadow, grove, and stream seemed apparelled in celestial light. And then there's, and it is not now, as it hath been of yore. So there's a huge fall from this time to this. And it's, the, it's a fall that occurs when he doesn't know, but it has occurred. And it's a fall which is a massive discontinuity between childhood and adulthood. And that massive discontinuity should remind you, as it reminds him, of the fall of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. That is, you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, and you go from being innocent and happy and living in Eden to going into the rest of the world. The world was all before them where to choose. And the rest of the world is not the world of Eden, and you are forever expelled from Eden. Yeah. It's an instantaneous change? Well, it is in Paradise Lost, and it more or less is in Genesis. That is that once you eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then you know all the evil that there is in the world. Is it an instantaneous change in the intimation zone? Well, he, it's instantaneous. Well, what do people think? Is it instantaneous in the first four stanzas of the intimation zone? Right. So, well, I think it's just unclear. Like, later in the poem, you see that it's gradual. Well, but later in the poem, he claims that it's gradual. Mm-hmm. But, uh, when he Which says, it clearly is, but yeah. Yeah, when it is not now as it has been of yore, when you're saying, when the difference is between now and yore, <coughs> there's time for things to occur. Yeah. However, in the poem, it's instantaneous. In the same way that Lucy's death in The Slumber of My Spirit Seal is instantaneous. Um, or in um, She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. That is, we go from a then to a now. And how we get from then to now, in a sense, you can reconstruct it, and presumably the Wordsworth of the first four stanzas would reconstruct it, as, yeah, this happened and then that happened, and um, I started... um, seeing that things were not as beautiful and wonderful as I thought they were, and so forth. But looking backwards, what he's doing is he's saying, here I am at the age of 33, and I suddenly am struck by a sense of the vast discontinuity between me now and me then. In fact, I'm intentionally quoting an amazing Joycean version of this in the, um, I think it's the Lestragonian chapters of Ulysses. Do people know about Ulysses, the novel? Yeah, you told us about yeah. it. So in one chapter, Leopold Bloom is remembering something from the past, and he thinks just, we're getting, this is a stream of consciousness, and we just get these two sentences, me and me 
So that me is the me in the past. Me, he's amazed. And then he's brought back to the present. And me now, look what's happened. How did that happen? So in the present, Wordsworth is remembering a past which is entirely different from what he is now. And so it may have occurred gradually, but the memory is a memory of the difference rather than of the gradual change. It's not, okay, I can walk, I can walk back the cat and see the continuity between me and me now. What he's saying instead is, there was a time, look at it, and I have a vivid memory of that time, but it is not now as it hath been of yore. So in the same way as with, that, that's another thing that a slumber did my spirit seal can show, is that he only knows he was asleep now that he's awake. He only knows that he wasn't thinking about the possibility that Lucy would die now that she's dead. And so the vastness of the difference is one that comes into perception at this moment. Um, what looms up at him in the prelude? Do you remember in the boat stealing scene? Do you remember how that scene works? There's a boat which is tied to a tree, and what does he do? A spin, a joy ride on the lake. And um, how's he rowing? Do you know, do people have a picture of, of, it's not like canoeing, how you row a boat, which way you're facing? Uh, the opposite direction. Yeah, you fa in order to get mo most efficiency, rowers are facing the back of the boat as they row, because that way they can pull instead of pushing, which is much less efficient. So when you row, you face the back of the boat. Have you ever done rowboats? Has anyone ever been in a rowboat? Um, rowed in a rowboat? My dad's rowed it, but I haven't personally rowed it. Okay. Um, have you ever watched crew? There's someone who's who's looking out front and steering the boat, but all the all the rowers are have their back to the way they're going. Why is that such a good image for Wordsworth? In the boat stealing scene. Metaphorically, why is that a good image? Going into the future without seeing what's happening. Or as you go to yeah, as you go, yeah. So you beat on boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past, or something. Um, in this case, he's not borne back ceaselessly into the past. That's uh, everyone know what that is? Gatsby. Yeah, the end of Gatsby. Um, but it's not that he's borne back into the past. It's that even as the past, even as he's going into the future, he's looking backwards. He's looking towards the past. And the past is, as he himself puts it, he fixes his eye on the top of a hill in order to orient himself. Do people remember that? Should we look at it? The boat stealing scene? Just for a minute. Um, I believe it's book three, yeah, isn't it? Um, uh, 
Oh, no, it's probably book two. On page 177? Book one? Oh, it's book one, my goodness. It starts in 176. Yes, yeah, 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 of course. Um, so one evening, surely I was led by her, by whom? Okay, previous stanza, line 365. But I believe that nature capitalized, oftentimes when she would frame a favored being from his earliest dawn of infancy doth open out the clouds as at the touch of lightning, seeking him with gentlest visitation. So nature does that in the dawn, shows clouds of glory. Not the less, though happily aiming at the same self end, does it delight her sometimes to employ severer interventions, ministry more palpable, and so she dealt with me. So when nature singles out a creature, sometimes you get lightning in at their birth, and it's all a sign of how um, um, important this person is. Um, that's not what happened with me, he says. Sometimes when um, a person needs more intervention because they're not, so there's a little modesty trope here. You think he's about to boast completely. I'm a completely special person. But he says, no, sometimes, um, um, though happily aiming at the self-same end, that is that she wants to um, produce a poet, that's what the favored being would be here, she has to use severe interventions. She can't just um, treat the newborn as a wonder in himself, but she has to intervene, ministry more palpable. That is, uh, she can't let him get away with stuff, and so she dealt with me. So the she then is... Right, so one evening, surely I was led by her, I went alone into a shepherd's boat, a skiff that to a willow tree was tied within a rocky cove, its usual home. One word to um, trace throughout the prelude is the word home, which is a really interesting word here. It's interesting all over Wordsworth, the idea of home. Um, in what, where shall I fix my home is the first thing he asks. In, in what vale or bower shall I fix my home? So... "'Twas by the shores of Patterdale, a vale wherein I was a stranger. Thither come a schoolboy traveler in the holidays, forth rambled from the village in alone. No sooner had, sorry, forth rambled from the village in alone. No sooner had I sight of this small skiff, discovered thus by unexpected chance, than I unloosed her tether and embarked. So he sees a boat under a tree, and um, he, he's a kid, he's on vacation. And um, he sees this boat, and he thinks he'll take it for a ride. The moon was up. The lake was shining clear among the hoary mountains. From the shore I pushed and struck the oars and struck again in cadence. And my little boat moved on, even like a man who walks with stately step, though bent on speed. So, um, as the footnote tells you, that's a famous moment from Paradise Lost. Um... So the boat is going. He says, I shouldn't have been doing this. It was an act of stealth and troubled pleasure. So it was a pleasure, but it was troubled pleasure. An act of stealth and troubled pleasure. And we're all familiar with that from childhood, stealth and troubled pleasure. 
This is the kind of thing that the experienced nurse would be against. This would be whisperings in the veil. It was an act of stealth and troubled pleasure. Nor without the voice of mountain echoes did my boat move on. Uh, voice is another word to notice in the prelude. Leaving behind her still, on either side, small circles glittering idly in the moon until they melted all into one track of sparkling light. And again, um, you should, and Nicholas Helmy does hear the ancient mariner there. This is the mariner at the back of the boat that's being sailed by, the, by life and death and by the dead sailors. A rocky steep uprose above the cavern of the willow tree. What willow tree is that? The tree of knowledge. I mean, the tree. <laughs> nice, but what tree is it literally in the in the scene that he's reflecting? Yeah, so the boat is tied uh, to okay. a tree. It's now a cavern, and uh, what platonic idea would the idea of a cave allude to? Allegory of the cave. Yeah, the allegory of the cave. Does everyone know it? Do you know it, Olivia? Yeah. 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 Yes, Meg? The allegory of the cave? Yes, no, maybe? Sorry? I said I was entirely zoned out for a second. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like the idea entirely zoned out for a second. It's like... Um, so Plato has um, a famous story about this world being like a cave in which we see shadows uh, um, cast by fire. We see shadows of objects that are behind us. We are facing a wall. We see the shadows of objects that are behind us being cast on that wall, um, and there's a fire behind us, but we don't know any of this. We think that the shadows on the wall are reality. And what reality actually is, if someone were to get up and turn around, they would see the fire, and they would see the objects that are being cast on the wall um, by the fire, the shadows that are being cast on the wall by the fire. And if that person really were original, that person would realize that the fire itself wasn't the true light, but would exit the cave and go out into the sunlight and would see reflections of things, no longer simply shadows, but reflections of things in the water of pools and lakes like this one, and eventually would see the sun itself. And that, for Plato, is a description of this life, this world, which is a world of shadows that we take for reality and the true world, which is the world of sunshine, which um, the philosopher can at least tell us about and remind us of. So the cavern of the willow tree, it's possible that Wordsworth is making a platonic um, connection there. It's the most famous single moment in Plato's Republic is the allegory of the cave. Um, possibly not, but possibly. And now, as suited one who proudly rode with his best skill, I fixed a steady view upon the top of that same craggy ridge, the bound of the horizon. So out he goes, and he sees this ridge, and um, he's as he's pushing from shore, and um, he sees the cavern of the willow tree and the rocky steep behind that cavern, and he keeps his eyes fixed on the ridge. So here is a willow tree. 
Here's the boat tied to the tree. It looks like a poem, but it isn't. Here's the boat tied to the tree. Here's Wordsworth with his sideburns. Rowing with oars. And here is a ridge behind the tree. So there's a craggy ridge full of, full of crags of various sorts behind the tree. And as, the, as he rows, he's going this direction. So now he's here. And as he rows, again, facing backwards, he is keeping his eyes fixed on that bridge. So that orients himself. That's a thing. Sorry? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, in a sense, that's what's going to happen. Because the farther out he goes, what happens to the angle, physicists? Yeah, the angle gets more and more acute. So eventually, parallactically. Unless the willow tree is growing in that time. Yeah, yeah but... The, oh, but his the, eyes are fixed on yes. the... Yeah. yeah, his eyes are fixed on the craggy ridge behind the willow tree. Yeah. So as he's going farther and farther away, the angle is getting more and more acute, approaching um, a, straight, a single straight line, um, to which it will never reach until he goes to infinity. The point, however, is that he's looking at the craggy ridge. So as he's going backwards, you can all try it with these wonderful chairs. Um, as he's going backwards, he's looking at the same thing. So I'm looking at the top of the blackboard. And my best skill, I'm just rowing really wonderfully, and you're very impressed. Okay, so um, that's what he's doing. For, it's the bound of the horizon, for behind was nothing but the stars and the gray sky. So up here is gray sky and stars. Maybe I should do it this way. So that's the so there's nothing on earth behind that ridge. There's just sky and stars. Um, and he's proud of himself. He's a good rower. She was an elfin pinnace, that is a little boat. Um, elfin means little, pinnace means boat. Um, but there's probably also a recollection here a little bit of Spencer's Fairy Queen. She was an elfin pinnace. Lustily, I dipped my oars into the silent lake. So here you have to, you can't continue to deny um, that there is a sexual undercurrent in this imagery. That is that an act of stealth and troubled pleasure, you can maybe put that aside as um, not it, 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 it's, we've all engaged in acts of stealth and trouble pleasure, and that might be why the experienced nurse is feeling it that way. Now we can feel that maybe slightly more literally, an act of stealth and trouble pleasure. I mean, I'm no Freudian, well I am, but you don't need to be a Freudian to see that part of what's going on here is a kind of metaphor of masturbation, or a kind of parallel to masturbation. That is that it, it's not important, it's not so the truth of this episode is that Wordsworth's um, thoughts are masturbatory, 
It's rather that what he's trying to do is get you the sense of guilt and desire that is familiar to everyone from their adolescence. And here he's applying it to how he is thinking about his relationship to nature. So it's not that Wordsworth sexualizes his relationship to nature, which would be the wrong reading. It would be that Wordsworth, you could say, naturalizes, makes part of his relationship to nature what is a familiar experience for adolescence, which is um, ambivalence and guilt about encroaching sexuality. For Wordsworth, he says, that feeling that we all had that's a feeling that haunted me in nature as well. So the truth here is not that it's sexual, it's that sex is the vehicle. Do you guys know about tenor and vehicle? Do you know that terminology? Um, so really important way of thinking about how metaphor works is that metaphors have tenors, that is the kind of thing that they're trying to convey. So if you say life is a load of shit, um, what you're trying to convey is that things aren't going as well for you as you might have hoped. And so the tenor of that, it's not quite the, for various reasons, you don't want to say it's the meaning of the metaphor. What you want to say is it's the um, attitude that the metaphor is conveying, the um, um, viewpoint, the way of seeing things that the metaphor is conveying. So that's called the tenor of the metaphor. Um, T-E-N-O-R. Yeah, and it's like, you know, you'll hear things like, well, the tenor of her remarks were, you should, that, that commencement was not the end of something, but the beginning of something, and that you should look forward to the rest of your life strengthened by your bright college years and ready to face the problems that the world will show, will throw at you. And you can say that in two sentences, and it's every graduation speech ever. Um, and you can say it in two sentences um, because it's a kind of summary. So tenor has like the meaning or the attitude or the basic idea. It can mean summary. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to mean summary, but it's what a metaphor is conveying. So to convey is to convey with a vehicle. That is, a vehicle is a conveyor, a conveyance. A vehicle is a train or a car or an airplane, um, train, a plane, an automobile. It's something that carries something else and is a vehicle for it, a conveyance for it. So the literal metaphor is the vehicle and what it brings to the reader or hearer or perceiver of the um, or audience of the person using the metaphor is the basic idea that that person wishes to convey to the listener or reader. Um, metaphor in Greek literally means transport. It means to carry across. Metaphorine means to carry across. And in fact, if you go to Athens or if you go to Greece, um, you will see that minibuses, like the brand van in um, modern Greece, are called metaphors. Metaphorine. That's so cool. Isn't it? 
Yeah. So um, they're not metaphorical metaphors. They're literal metaphors <laughs> because they're literal transports. Um, so we use the word metaphor metaphorically to talk about a metaphorical vehicle which is carrying a t metaphorically carrying a tenor, a trans it's metaphorically transporting, um, carrying a meaning or an idea or a, or a point of view across, um, transport, porting it across. So here, what people will frequently say is that the tenor here is sex, and the vehicle is Wordsworth's relationship to his vehicle, to the boat, that vehicle. Um, that Wordsworth is in this boat, and he's, it's an act of stealth and lusty pleasure, and she's an elf in pinnace, and I lustily, I dipped my oar into the silent lake, and as I rose upon the stroke, my boat went heaving through the water. So it's hard not to hear that sexually, right? This isn't just English teacher dirty-mindedness, or is it? Okay. Um, you agree, Megan? You look slightly skeptical. No, I was just tracking with it. I agree. Okay. So, um, but I would actually be a little bit less dirty-minded there to say that, in fact, the sexuality is the vehicle. It's not that the tenor is sexuality and the vehicle is rowing a boat. It's that... The vehicle of sexuality, this is obviously sexual, but what he's in fact trying to do is to say something like, you know that feeling you have when you're feeling really, really guilty about your sexual fantasies and about acting upon your sexual fantasies when you're alone? You know that feeling of strange guilt where you know there's nothing wrong with it and you still feel guilty? That's how I felt about nature. In other words, it's not that, ooh, now we know it's sex. It's think about sex and now apply that to nature. And it's not the sexuality. It's not desire. It's not um, something like being turned on by the natural scene. But there was the same residue of excitement and guilt that I was feeling. Yeah. Why is he feeling guilty about nature? Because he, well, that's a good question. Um, do people want to take that on? Why he's feeling guilty about nature? You kind of wrote, wrote a paper on it. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Well, that was interesting, though, because I don't know that was in particular. Yeah, but, but. But yeah, like, he feels like nature is this, like, really, like, special, wholesome thing, but then it's really just an illusion that's hiding like, the real world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so early on, why he might be feeling guilty about nature is that how are we supposed to feel about nature according to someone like Thoreau, let's say? This is, or, or at least a slightly parodic version of Thoreau, or environmentalists. Um, how are we supposed to feel about nature? John, what would John Muir say? You know, the person who took all those amazing photos of Yosemite before it was a national park. You're supposed to love it. We're supposed to love it pure and simple. And yet he's not quite feeling that way. What he's doing in some ways 
is treating it as a place for ad exciting adventure rather than simply being in sync, in harmony with nature. Maybe it's something like that. That nature is, suppo you're supposed to have a harmonious relationship to nature. That would be the deep environmental idea of nature. And he's not quite feeling that way. And so that might be something to feel guilty about. That it's, it's for him, I don't know, maybe a version now would be snowmobiling. That is, that you see this beautiful, well, maybe literally that would be a version of it. You see this beautiful virgin tract of snow where no one has been. And it's just so sublimely beautiful and so quiet. And you can hear the owls from far away and the water running under the ice. And it's the most beautiful thing ever. So you get into your snowmobile and you roar across the field to get close to it and to just throw the snow everywhere and to be part of this. And in doing that, you're violating the very thing that's attractive to you. And if you put it the way I've just put it, that's using vaguely sexual terminology, violation and virgin fields and so on. Um, to describe something that isn't actually sexual, but that has the same kind of, um, of thoughtlessness as, um, and, and ultimate guiltiness as sexual predation or sexual aggression. That you're doing that to the landscape, not because it gets you hot to do it to the landscape, but it's still doing the wrong thing to the landscape. And a way of conveying that is by using a sexualized language of sexual aggression. I mean, I think that's something that we're familiar with. And... So I feel in a grove of hazelnuts. Are you thinking of nutting? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the poem Nutting is like that as well, um, where he sees the nuts and he starts grabbing at the branches and he's left... You know, he wants these nuts, but it becomes, you know, nutting is obviously... Do people remember the poem? It's obviously a poem in which the vehicle is masturbation. That is what he's doing to the limbs of the trees that he's grabbing the nuts from. I mean, they're... <laughs> he's grabbing nuts. What do you want? Um, and I don't think that's, that's a joke in his time, but still... Um, what he's done is um, done something wrong to the very idea of nature. Nature has somehow, the very idea of nature has been violated, and the metaphor for that is sexual violation. But it's not that nutting is really about sex, it's that um, he uses familiar ideas about sexual ambivalence to describe his ambivalence about what he's done, let's say as a woodsman as someone who knows his way around nature and therefore can exploit it, which is what woods people can do. They can exploit the very thing that they know in the same way as someone who reveres nature knows it. So that there, there's, there's something like that going on. So um, at any rate... She was an elf in pinnace. Lustily, I dipped my oars into the silent lake, and as I rose upon the stroke, my boat went heaving through the water like a swan. 
when from behind that craggy steep, till then the bound of the horizon, a huge cliff, as if with voluntary power instinct, upreared its head. So, again, you can keep the sexual imagery going if you want. Um, it's really very easy to do. Um, I struck and struck again, and growing still in stature, the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars, and still with measured motion, like a living thing, strode after me. So what's happened? How has this worked? Where did this cliff come from? Did you guys just read this and say, oh, that's interesting. A cliff came out of nowhere and started chasing him. Huh. <laughs> I guess he got far enough away that he could see. Yeah, so is that your class? Yes. Oh, oh. Can, can I? It's I'm not class. I just took it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you took it? You're drinking out of someone else's glass? Yeah, it looks like the dining hall. Yeah, it looks yeah, like okay. the dining That's what you mean. All right, <laughs> so don't move your computer. Okay, so here's the boat. That's the glass. Pay no attention to the water in the glass because the water is actually around it. Here's the boat, and here is the crag, and here is where it's worth looking at the crag. Let's do it here. So what he can't do is see Olivia because this is in the way. So you're the huge cliff. You sit up a little straighter so you can be the huge cliff. Good. So can you see the glass from where you were? Okay, so the glass can't see you either. So he's looking, and as he goes farther and farther away, tell me when you can see the glass. Oh, there. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> Amazing, right? Yeah. That's when he can see her, can see the huge cliff. So the farther away he gets... Like <laughs> Who hasn't? So the farther away he gets from the crag, which is the computer screen, the smaller the crag gets in his perspective, and the more the huge cliff behind the crag starts towering over the crag. So what's going on here is, here's the crag. From here, he can't see it because the cliff is in the way, but by the time he gets here, He can see right over the cliff to the crag. And the more he rows, the greater the difference between the angle that he's seeing at the top of the cliff and the crag behind it. So it looks to him like the crag is towering more and more, like the cliff is towering more and more over the crag as he gets farther and farther away from it. So, Meg, it looks like you're not agreeing with the trigonometry here. Again, I'm jumping between a lot of headspace and open down the left. So what's happening is the farther away he gets from the thing intervening between him and the cliff, the more the thing that's behind comes running after him or seems to be coming running after him. So what is this actually a metaphor for? 
What is this actually conveying? Him realizing... Am I going on the right track here? I think so, but keep your eyes... Keep your eyes on the X prize. (laughs) He's realizing... Him realizing his guilt. About what? About... Him realizing that his love for nature is, like, not actual love for nature. Okay, so there's certainly something guilty that he's experiencing there. What about in purely positional terms? In other words, um, forget the emotion or the feeling and instead see it as a kind of diagram, oh, you know, a kind of Feynman diagram like that, a kind of Feynman diagram of um, something that's happening to him in life. He's growing up, and as he grows up, what gets bigger? What looms bigger and bigger? As he goes farther and farther away from it, what looms bigger and bigger? <laughs> okay, <laughs> metaphorically, what do we get farther and farther away from as we grow older? Childhood. And what looms bigger and bigger in this metaphor then? Death. <laughs> Death. Okay, the thing we get farther away from gets bigger and bigger. Oh, adulthood. Your childhood. Thank you, yes. Wait. Pure substitution here. The farther away you get from it, the more it looms. Oh, right. Okay. Wait, okay. what does loom mean? <laughs> um, hulks over you. Hulks, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay, do that again. Oh, I just did this. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. okay. Imagine if I was tall and it would have worked better. But. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like the Brandeis Brightfield Wall. Yeah. It looms. Okay. Um, sorry? Is it pop fly still a home run though, so like it doesn't Yeah. It it's kind of like college. <laughs> pop flies a home run. That's a metaphor for you. Alright. So so um, the farther away he gets from the intervening tree the more something behind the tree looms up at him. Now, if you actually read this carefully, there's a problem with it, which I believe Wordsworth knew, and I believe is part of the point here, which is that the huge cliff, so it upreared its head, I struck and struck again, and growing still in stature, the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars, and still with measured motion like a living thing strode after me. With trembling hands I turned and through the silence stole my way back to the cavern of the willow tree. There in her mooring place I left my bark and through the meadows went with grave and serious thoughts. And after I had seen that spectacle for many days, my brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. In my thoughts there was a darkness, call it solitude or blank desertion. No familiar shapes of hourly objects, images of trees, of sea or sky, no colors of green field, but huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men moved slowly through my mind by day and were the trouble of my dreams. So somehow this thing was really, really spooky to him. 
And um, it's an amazing passage how he felt after he had done this thing. Um, to give you one slight example of how the 1850 Prelude revises, um, the line um, 429, so huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men, gets changed in 1850 to huge and mighty forms that do not move like living men. That is, he does something which is perfectly reasonable, which is not repeat the word live, but that's actually a loss that they do not live like living men suggests that there is some other spooky, uncanny use of the word live. They do live, but they do not live like living men. And how to live in a way different from the way living beings live, that's a little bit spooky. That's the undetermined mode of being that he's talking about. Um, the word blank is a word to follow in Wordsworth as well. Um, he gets it ultimately from Milton, um, again from the invocation of Book Three of Paradise Lost, and for the Book of Knowledge Fair, he, Milton, is presented with a universal blank. So that word blank is um, a crucial word in Milton, and it becomes a crucial word in um, in Wordsworth. Um, that. Um, Thoughts of darkness called solitude or blank desertion. Um, the problem with the metaphor that Wordsworth gives or the analogy, does anyone see what it is? If you're being literal minded as we were with the boat leaving, the description of the boat going away from the cliff. Literally, that all makes sense up to a certain point, and then at a certain point, it stops being literally true. Like when he goes back. Why? Because he can't literally regress. Okay, so no, figuratively, he can't regress. Literally, you can always turn around. It's just oh, sorry, you yeah. can't turn around in time. Yeah. yeah. I think returning back to the, to the cavern of the willow tree is a reference to Plato's allegory. Okay, when yeah. When he's returning to the cave and He's returning to the cave, but figuratively he can't return to the cave because he can't unlearn what he learned when he was out of the cave. Okay, what you guys are saying is right, um, figuratively. But what he's done is he has a really good... Do you guys know how metaphysical poetry works? That is done most famously, but there are several metaphysical poets. Um, so what they do is they... Is it, does the term make sense to people? Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? Metaphysical poetry. Um, do you know a valediction forbidding mourning, which is one of Dunn's most famous examples? Um, other people don't. Okay, so yeah. So the way a metaphysical poem works is you get a really unlikely object as a metaphor for how you're feeling. Um, Coleridge describes Dunn. Um, Coleridge, like many many poets of the late 18th and early 19th century thought that Dunn was um, a bizarre weirdo and that his poetry stood for the bizarre wrong directions that poetry could go. So Coleridge um, has a notebook poem where he talks about 
Dun, whose muse, it begins with Dun, whose muse on dromedary trots. So what's a dromedary, anyone know? A camel. So Dun goes riding on a camel. Um, so which was regarded by, um, in, the, in, in England as a ridiculous animal. The joke is that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Um, that is, everyone in the committee says, well, and then we'll have a water carrier, but where will we put it? Oh, on its back. We have to put it somewhere. So, with Dunn, whose muse on dromedary trots, wreathe iron pokers into true love knots. So the idea is that how does Dunn write a love poem? He takes an iron poker, you know, something that you, that you poke the fire with, and he turns that into a love knot. And it's not the most beautiful love knot you can give your beloved. Beloved is not one made of an iron poker. So Dunn's metaphors, Dunn will take a very, very unlikely metaphor. And then he'll show through his cleverness how that metaphor works to parallel every feeling that a lover might have. So he says, what is my love for you like? He says in A Valediction for Bidding Morning. Well, we're like, really what we're like is a compass with two legs. And um, because what fills a person's heart with more warmth or sentimentality than being compared to the leg of a compass? Really, just try it next time you fall in love with someone. Say, oh, you're like the leg of a compass to me. Um, but what Dunn does is he says everything about the image of the leg of a compass works, which is that um, we're, I'm always leaning after you. You're the fixed leg, and I'm the moving leg, and it's true I have to travel, but I'm always leaning towards you the way the moving leg that draws the circle is always leaning towards the fixed leg that is, um, that, that, that is um, pushed into the center of the circle, and that, um, therefore, your firmness, to take a famous line, your firmness makes my circle just, um, or, or keeps my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. So it's a really good image of love. And then he says, plus, um, the, the, you're always, I'm always leaning towards you, you're always hearkening after me, and um, you, and then maybe there's a failure in the metaphor, maybe there's a strange joke in the metaphor, he says, you grow erect as I come home. That is, as when I return to where you are, because I've been out traveling, when I return where you are, the center um, leg of the compass, instead of leaning, as the outer leg comes closer, it goes more and more vertical. Um, so that can either seem slightly grotesque because there's some strange um, uh, projection of gender from him to her, um, or it can seem brilliant, or it can seem both. But metaphysical metaphors, metaphysical conceits as they're called. The word metaphysical was given to them by Dr. Johnson, by Samuel Johnson, whom you guys will remember, um, as a term of um, disapproval. And he said it's like reading not poetry, but metaphysical philosophy. It's um, putting things together that have no true um, poetic harmony 
within them, and therefore he called them the metaphysical poets. Um, poets that are doing things that logically make sense, but that are not poetry. And that, for Coleridge, is wreathing an iron poker into a true love knot. And um, here you have something like that, a beautiful conceit, a beautiful extended metaphor, which is one possible definition of conceit, a beautiful extended metaphor that makes sense that there's a boat and he goes out into it and he sails into the water with his back to it because he doesn't know what is what the future holds, but his eyes are fixed on the past and as his eyes are fixed on the past, it turns out that something in the past that he couldn't see when he was there, because it was too close, starts looming out over him. And the farther away he gets from the past, the more he gets haunted by it. That could be one way of unpacking it. Right? Does that make sense to people? Yeah. Um, it's clearly a crucial, I mean, he's putting it here because it's a crucial um, moment of describing the relationship of the present self to the past self. What's another famous, or you don't know that it's famous, do you remember another image of um, comparing the present to the past self in um, the prelude? He talks about looking over the side of a boat, another boat metaphor and not being able to tell the difference or having trouble distinguishing what he sees through the water and what he sees reflected on the surface of the water. Do you remember this? And then he says, so that I seemed to myself to be two consciousnesses, conscious of myself and of some other being. Let's see if we can find this quickly. Can you find it? Um, yeah, it's in book four around like 245. Sounds right. Um, yes, thank you. Good, you get to read it. Oh. Um, As one. As one who hangs down bending from the side of a slow moving boat upon the breast of a still water, solacing himself with such discoveries as I can make beneath him in the bottom of the deeps. Sees many beauteous sights, weeds, fishes, flowers, rocks, pebbles, roots of trees, and fancies more. It often is perplexed and cannot part the shadow from the substance, rocks and sky, mountains and clouds, from that which is indeed the region, and the things which there abide in their true form. Um, should I keep going? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now is crossed by gleam of his own image by a sunbeam now, and motions that are sent he knows not whence, impediments that make his task more sweet. Such pleasant office have we long pursued incumbent o'er the surface of past time with like success. Nor have we often looked on more alluring shows, to me at least, more soft or less ambiguously described than those which now we have been passing by and where we still are lingering. Okay, great. So, yeah, stop there. Um, so that look over the um, side is, is the way the past and the present combine. Um, in a kind of um, the, the present is reflected, um, the past is on the other side of the water, or maybe it's the other way around, it doesn't matter which, but there is an overlay of past and present, and that's what being recumbent or the surface of past time is about. 
Um, and he says it's what he's doing in this poem. And um, so here, so that's another really good conceit or image, or image of what's going on as he is thinking about the past in the present. The other thing, the other place that I'm thinking of is the beginning of book two. Um, Thus far, a friend have we, so this page 183 of the Norton, Thus far, a friend of we, though leaving much unvisited, endeavored to retrace my life through its first years and measured back the way I traveled when I first began to love the woods and fields. The passion yet was in its birth, sustained as might befall by nourishment that came unsought. For still, from week to week, from month to month, we lived around a tumult. Duly were our games prolonged in summer till the daylight failed. No chair remained before the doors, the bench and threshold steps were empty. Fast asleep the laborer and the old man who had sat a later lingerer, yet the revelry continued and the loud uproar at last when all the ground was dark and the huge clouds were edged with twinkling stars. To bed we went with weary joints and with a beating mind. So that's, he's remembering in those 18 lines um, the sports of childhood and then he goes on. Ah, is there one who ever has been young and needs a monetary voice to tame the pride of virtue and of intellect. Um, so this is what we call a logical product. That is, is there someone, can it be possible for both of these things to be simultaneously true, that someone has been young and that they need a monetary voice, a voice to warn them? Um, oh, for that warning voice, as Milton says. And the answer to this rhetorical question is no. You don't, both these things can't be true. If you've been young, you don't need a voice to remind you of it. And is there, uh, sorry, um, and is there one, the wisest and the best of all mankind, who does not sometimes wish for things which cannot be who should not give, if so he might, to duty and to truth, the eagerness of infantine desire. So are there people who love duty and truth as much as they loved their childhood sports? Is there anyone in the world who feels that way? Again, the implicit answer is no. A tranquilizing spirit presses now on my corporeal frame, so wide appears the vacancy between me and those days. So this is not bound each to each by natural piety. It's me and those days, me and me now, and a wide vacancy between them. So that's the vacancy between where the boat is and the cliff behind the crag, that he goes forward enough into the future, he's lived long enough, he's become old enough that childhood now becomes visible to him again through the difference between now and then. To quote James Merrill, in now's black waters burn the stars of then. It's a line in a villanelle of James Merrill. Um, looking into a pool of ink, he says, in now's black waters, he's seeing the reflection in the ink, in now's black waters burn the stars of then. So the boat goes far enough away that he's no longer part of 
the landscape of childhood. He's way out on the waters, no longer part of the landscape of childhood. And it's when he goes far enough away that suddenly the whole thing, or the largest thing, is looming over him, and it seems coming after him, so that every time he rows, every boat length forward that he goes, the difference between the crag and the cliff grows larger. So the cliff is looming more and more the farther and farther away he goes from it. That's the image there. So then to go on here, so wide appears the vacancy between me and those days, which yet have such self-presence in my mind. That is completeness, self-presence. They're not present to me now as part of my life now, they are self-contained within a presence that my mind can perceive, that sometimes when I think of them, I seem two consciousnesses, conscious of myself and of some other being. So which is which? I seem two consciousnesses. It's an odd image here, or an odd way of describing it. When I think of them, I seem two consciousnesses. Yeah. One is the crag and one is the cliff. Okay, but if he says, I, I'm conscious of myself and of some other being, you're right, one is one and one is the other, but which is which? So I seem two consciousnesses means something like I seem to be two different people simultaneously. Because to be a consciousness is to be a first-person person, right? So I seem to be two first-persons, which doesn't quite make sense, because it is the nature of the first-person to be singular. Yeah, we use the word we, but we never means, unless you're Rasta, where it really does mean it, I and I. We means I and others whether I and you or I and um, my friends and not you. We means I belong to a group of others who are, who are not first persons to me. But how can you feel like you're two first persons? How can you feel like you're two consciousnesses? And then he immediately steps away from that, right? Do you think you could feel that you're two consciousnesses? Do you think you can feel that split within yourself? I feel like maybe you can momentarily, that that's what me and me now is, that Mr. Bloom says me, and by that me, he doesn't mean me now. He means somehow the real me, who got lost in the me now. Who is thinking me and me now? Which me is thinking that? Me now. Me now is thinking that, but which me does, does the me now think it really is? The first one. Maybe the first one. Me! And me now, which is not the real me. I think that's how it feels in those four words and in the context that you would find them in in Ulysses. So, 
when he says, I feel like two consciousness, conscious of myself and of some other being, is the myself Wordsworth in 1805, or is the myself Wordsworth in 1780? 1780. Okay, so the some other being is the adult who's writing this. So I seem to myself to be two consciousnesses. Um, um, wouldn't, wouldn't the intimations that would suggest the opposite? Say more. So he's, he's thinking, I'm here now, and then my experiences were like this one way, but now they're no longer like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what it feels like. So there's a vacancy. Just look at this again. The vacancy between me and those days. So the me is me now. Those days are the them. The vacancy between me and those days which yet have such, such self-presence in my mind, that is the me now, that sometimes when I think of them, I seem two consciousnesses. So I think of them, and then I seem two consciousnesses, conscious of myself and of some other being. Well, it... It's possible that you could feel that as a how did I get here moment, to quote David Byrne. How did this happen? Um, Because the real me is the past one, suddenly conscious of this adult that it, like Tom Hanks, got transfused into, if you've seen Big. Um, They're all Wordsworthy. I'm just showing you how Wordsworth infects everything. So, when that happens, it may be that there's a kind of switch going on in who the first person is designated. That I seem two consciousnesses, so so somehow the intensity of the past completely reawakens, so he he seems that consciousness. And I think in some sense it has to be that the other being is the adult person who's writing this. Conscious of myself and of some other being, it can't really be that his childhood self is the other being. I mean, just think about your early childhood for a second. Take a, take a moment to have a vivid memory, to recollect a vivid memory. and decide which of you is the other being as you have that recollection. Which of you is really the other being. And if I do that thought experiment, it's hard for me to think of my very young child self as the other being. And it's easier for me to think of this adult that I've turned into as the other being. Do you not feel that way? You're looking skeptical. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I think it's hard to feel that way. I was trying to feel that way. But trying to feel that the adult is... Yeah, that the adult is me. And then I was a kid who did something. 
Yeah. And you found it hard to think of it that way. No, I found it hard to think of it your way. Oh, so you think of the adult as being you and the yeah. kid as someone that you're seeing from outside, like from a photo. Mm-hmm. Okay, do other people feel that way? Yeah. Huh, interesting. Maybe we haven't rode enough. Yeah. <laughs> road, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yes, once you graduate college. What about you, Ryan? You as a college graduate. Yeah, I, feel, I, I think I feel like everyone wants the other being as a child. Huh. Okay. I think, you know, I mean, I don't know what you say other than memory, and I have different, you know, I suppose it depends on which type of memory I'm looking at. Like, I, the first thing I thought of, because I was just in St. Louis, was saying that I remember when I was five being at the arch and, like, touching it, I remember it feeling cold. Uh-huh. But that's, the, like, that's the only detail I remember. It's not a vivid memory that I have a whole story around that. So yeah. that's, you know, a different type of thing than when I remember being in a museum and, like, losing track of my adult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's an entirely different type of vivid memory. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they might be slow, like I might interpret those differently, which version of me is the other in those. Okay, that, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you guys know, do we have time, do you guys know the Elizabeth Bishop poem in the waiting room? Um, can you recite the most important moment? So now. Sorry? Isn't there, what's the, I can't. Almost, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, so it, it's, uh, she's remembering um, being five years old or so. It's, um, I guess she's eight, it's 1919. And she goes with her aunt to the um, dentist where her aunt is having a procedure and she's sitting in the waiting room waiting and um, paging through a National Geographic magazine. So then she says in parentheses, I could read. So it's as she's writing the poem, um, she's also reconstructing how old she was. And she realizes she could read um, because she was reading the National Geographic magazine in the waiting room. And um, then she has this very strange thought, which is she thinks to, I thought to myself, she says, I thought to myself, you were an I. You are an Elizabeth. You are one of them. It seemed, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but it seemed very strange to me how I didn't have any other word for it. How unlikely. So what's happening is that Elizabeth Bishop in her 60s is remembering herself at age 8, so about 60 years earlier, and remembering that feeling of unlikeliness that she was one of them, that she was another person um, like them, and that the strangeness of that, that she doesn't have a better word than unlikely, that the I should be a being like others. And I think when she's writing that poem, and maybe when you're reading the poem, um, what you are the perspective that you're taking is going to be the perspective, certainly it's her perspective, of the child who now, all these years later, is still remembering the unlikelihood that this should happen. Um, There's a great James Stevenson book. Did you guys read James Stevenson as kids? Um, Kids book? You probably did, but you didn't realize it's James Stevenson. it's one about uh, this little kid is hearing a story from his grandfather about going into a haunted house 
and the grandfather says, no, this isn't familiar to you. The grandfather um, says, yes, when I was your age, I did a terrible thing. Um, everyone said, don't go into that house, but I did go into it. And um, it was just terrible what happened to me. And the kid is just more and more riveted. And the grandfather says, I'm not going to tell you, but when I came out, I came out as an old man. And he points to himself. Um, that's how terrible what happened in this house was. Um, so that idea that the old man, that's in what he's telling the child is, yeah, um, the old man is actually a child who was cursed. Um, George Oppen has a great line um, about being old where he says, what a strange thing to happen to a little boy. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> yeah. So, but, if you, but, but that perspective is the other being is the old man, not the little boy, but the old man is the other being. Wordsworth leaves it completely ambiguous, conscious of myself and of some other being. That is, conscious of myself at 35 writing this poem, or conscious of myself and some big, kind of grody 35-year-old claiming to be me and writing this story. And I think you can't really tell which is which here. But that double consciousness, when double consciousness is an impossibility, so it's a kind of kind of... Um, flip-flop, whipsaw back and forth between me and me now. Or maybe it should be me and me then. How different would Ulysses be if, if the words were me and me then? Um, in one way, not at all different. In another way, entirely different. In one way, that's synonymous. In another way, it would change everything. And I think that's what Wordsworth is thinking about as well. At any rate, let's go back to the vote ceiling scene for a minute on Wednesday, which is, say, for 20 or 30 minutes, and then we will go back to the intimation zone. So do read through book six of the prelude, of the 1805 prelude for Wednesday. Um, I think it's useful to go back and forth between the prelude and the intimation zone, although we really didn't do much of the intimation zone now. But the intimation zone really is me later, immortal, and me then, there was a time. And how childhood gives you an intimation of immortality and who has that intimation, that has to do with where you locate yourself as the true you within your own life. Okay, see you guys Wednesday.